You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, April 8th, 2022. I'm Warren Pies, founder of 314 Research. Today, I'm joined by Jeremy Schwartz, Global Chief Investment Officer at Wisdom Tree Asset Management. Jeremy, how are you doing today? Warren, good to see you from Miami. Uh, good to talk to you. Yeah, same here. Um, well, I, today I would categorize today's market action as really a continuation of a number of trends that we've seen in place really throughout the first quarter of 2022. So we had rates jumping, dollar strength, especially against the yen, uh, you know, commodity strength within the market. We saw energy sector leading the rest of the sectors and tech sector uh, you know, taking up the rear. So. Uh, really kind of the same trade we've seen. The market's held in at these these levels, you know, about 4,500 on the S&P 500, right around the 200-day, 150-day, two key levels that we've pointed out in our research that I know you're familiar with and that we've also discussed on uh, these daily briefings before. Um, so that's kind of the way we see it. And uh, Q1 now behind us, moving to Q2, uh, Fed's fully in gear with their tightening cycle. What do you see? How do you put today's price action in the context of the bigger picture where many of these moves are continuations? Yeah, it's interesting. In, for the year-to-date moves, you have the NASDAQ, which I was looking today, down about 12%. Uh, the Q's down almost 12% on the year. It's the exact opposite for value. So you've had this major factor rotation. If you look at like a high dividend basket, it's up 10% on the year. So you've got 2,000 basis points spread. And that's, again, what was happening today between high dividend value versus the, the growthy tech. Um, you know, and, and our theme for the year has been inflation, and and in our macro economist uh, that I've worked with for twenty years, Professor Siegel, has been calling the Fed very behind the curve. We've been saying for some time that they're going to be more aggressive than people expect, and I'd still say people like don't believe the Fed. Like they say, you know, that they've been skeptical that they're going to do as much as they need to do. Like that they are going to just let this inflation go. Um, and and you, I think part of the reading of the minutes this week was that even the most dovish are saying we need 50 basis points. Uh, and then the question will be, you know, how many of these 50 basis point type hikes do they get? Uh, are they more like a Bullard who's saying we need to end the year over 3% or is it going to go slow? And I think people have gotten used to this Fed is going to stay low and not thinking about this new regime. And, and it's very possible we're in a much new regime for the Fed, and that's been our, our baseline view. And I think that's what you're seeing today and, and on the bigger picture for the year. Yeah, I think it was Goldman came out today and said 4% on Fed funds rate. And uh, you know, our position is that the economy is gonna buckle before we get to that place. Uh, that's more or less what 314's been saying. I think its cycles are compressing. Uh, one chart that I wanted to throw your way and just see how you or I have a lot of respect for for Professor Siegel and I've been on your show and he's been there uh, a couple times as well. Um, one chart I wanted to show up is the, the one year, nine year forward inflation rate 
versus the 10-year break-even inflation rate. So this is a chart from the 314 chart book, Q1, Q2 chart book that we just released. And what you're seeing here is the one by nine forward inflation rate uh, really not reacting as strongly as that full 10-year uh, break-even. The point that you would get from this chart is that so much of the, of the jump we've seen in inflation expectations is bunched up in the next 12 months. You know, and that really has happened. We have another chart that I don't have on this call, uh, but it shows how pre-Russia pre invasion of Ukraine and post-invasion, that jump uh, is when it really happened. It's when that first 12-month inflation really started spiking. And so the takeaway here is that the market's pricing in really strong inflationary impulse over the next 12 months, probably war-related. Uh, and the question is, is this something the Fed's equipped to really battle? And do you think that we should be, would your base case or the professor's base case be that we're going to see the inflation expectations in the market start to bleed into the out years beyond just that 12 month period? Yeah, so that's where we've been saying it's not just this Ukraine situation, that it's actually a money supply situation, that you've had this record growth in M2 money supply. And the Fed, because Inflation was so for so long, they like forgot about the money supply. They like don't care that the money supply has increased at levels that hasn't increased in 150 years. And so that is money that's different than during the last time they did these big, the, the Fed was doing a big purchases after the financial crisis where all of the excess reserves, all the QE status excess reserves in banks, it didn't get out into the real economy. This time you had fiscal and sort of direct payments to people. So this is money in people's checking accounts. It's very different. And that is part of the underlying buildup and pressure of why there's uh, there was this move with COVID from services to goods that you could say opening up, there'll be you know, a reshifting of how we're spending, and maybe that will alleviate some of the pressures. But you have record employment levels. There's no, you can't fill the jobs. There's so many openings, you can't fill it. There is a lot of underlying strength uh, in the economy, and there's money in people's checkouts. So we do believe it's more like a three to five year story. Now we're like one year into that inflationary impulse. Maybe we still have three years left. So we're not thinking it's just a 12 month period. It's more like 5% inflation for a number of years. And and so that's why we we are I guess would say on the more hawkish side and and you know the market's come a long way I mean I, we were the only one saying two percent by the end of the year before people were saying three or four hikes uh, the market's come a lot um, but it it probably still has even more they're sort of skeptical how long this inflation is going to be starting to pricing cuts again very quickly um, and so I think that's where our, our sort of biggest outlier view is. Yeah, I mean, you guys have been dead on on your your expectation for Fed hawkishness, and and we were skeptical. Um, really, have maintained some of that skepticism even now. I'd say um, the question, I guess, on the intersection of a lot of these things is: Do you see the you say the economy strong? The economy does look strong, especially on a rearview mirror basis, right? And that's you know we we look at tax receipt data, and everyone is flush with cash, and uh, it's you know from most perspectives, the, the macro backdrop looks good. When we look out in, into the future, though, one of the, the the pieces of this chart book, and it gives you a good view of of just the forty thousand foot view of the markets, right? Is you have 
the combination of housing cost in the form of interest, mortgage payments and housing uh, uh, appreciation up 30% year over year, which is the biggest spike we've ever seen in real housing costs uh, in this short of a time. And you also have oil up you know, 80, 90% year over year with upside, I'd say to that. The question is, if the Fed starts laying on this kind of a, of a hiking cycle, this kind of a quick hiking cycle, do you think the economy is strong enough to kind of hang in there and allow for this full cycle to play out, or does the the economy start to weaken? Uh, how do you factor that into your your outlook? Yeah, I think that's definitely the question for next year and 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 beyond. I mean, I think this year we're still on the, on the sense that it's still pretty strong. But that that I I love those charts that you have out there on the housing and the oil price increase. I think those are the key issues um, of of right now. And the five percent mortgage rates is a key issue for for all those things. Um, and you got to see are the what are the are there other risks of COVID flaring back up? What's happening in China? What's happening in Europe? All those things are going to put the downward pressures on the economy. Uh, but the U.S. is in a very strong spot, uh, somewhat insulated, but obviously it's a global economy, and all these things can can have have implications. Um, and so I, I we understand that, but you know I think the 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 money in people's check accounts are the things putting the pressure out on the full system, and so are they they're better they're better served than sort of some of the past. And we haven't really had this inflationary impulse in forty years, so you have to see how that all all plays out there. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're really getting at the the pulse of what the the big debate is in markets right now is like how much can the uh, we have these external shocks, cost shocks, supply shocks that are being thrown at the market and the economy, and then you have the Fed. And the one point that we didn't bring up, and that I think is the real, you know, just to maybe draw a little bit of a distinction, I think that the Fed could go as as hard as you think. And I, my guess would be it would be a policy mistake. And the Fed can see the same things I can see, which is that you know when you look out at the break-even curve and the forward inflation curve, you know this is really a near-term problem as predicted by the markets for right now. Why would the Fed keep pushing in its, in my view, a political environment? You know, the Fed is now becoming. They've always been a political institution, really, but this has become a very political environment. And you've seen lawmakers move from, like, you know, just a few years ago, President Trump yelling at the Fed and saying, we need uh, you to cut rates and do more QE, to, you know, you have Joe Manchin and other prominent lawmakers arguing for immediate hikes, ending QE, getting kind of more um, austere on the monetary policy side. So the political pressure is real on the Fed and on Powell. At this point, and one way to measure that is uh, through another chart that I throw up on the screen with the midterm election year. And this is in this chart we're breaking out, you know, how the market performs first every other year that's not a midterm election year, and then uh, you know how we perform historically uh, during midterm election years. And it's uh, it's not a pretty picture. And then when you you take it one level farther and say midterm election years when the Fed is hiking rates. Those are the worst uh, worst years ultimately to be in the market. And then we track 2022 performance, and yeah, we've we've been pretty volatile on the downside, but uh, ultimately right in line with what you would expect as a lagging kind of calendar year, given that the Fed's hiking rates and it's a midterm election year. Do you do you have any thoughts on the political pressure that the Fed's facing, or? 
Well, it's a great chart, very nice visual, um, and it shows the markets do not like uncertainty. Um, it, that uncertainty creates more volatility, and 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 you see that, and that's both from the election cycle as well as the Fed hiking, uh, and sort of rising Fed rates does put pressure on valuations, and that that's related to what's happening now. Is the cost of capital is going up? You can now, with the two year, you know, two and a half percent, you you're at zero, and you know, not so long ago, it's, it's skyrocketed, and so that you could actually earn some cap, you know, returns on just safer capital, is is a reason why stocks should have of a lower valuation multiple, and and so the ones that were the highest multiples are the ones getting hit the most. The ones that have, again, those high dividends, current cash flow being returned are being hurt less or even positive. Um, and so that you know, I, I think that's a a very different dynamic, and that's it's playing out exactly what you think with the Fed cycle uh, moving that way. Yeah, I mean, uh, just one more quick chart that. I think gets to your point exactly is uh, this uh, multiple compression that we've seen in the stock market since the beginning of 2021 when rates have really started screaming higher. And in this chart, we're looking at earnings growth. And so we have, you know, obviously, like you've described, a really strong economy powering earnings growth. And it looks like when you look out forward estimates, we should continue to get that maybe double digit S&P operating earnings growth this year. But when you look at years when or to periods when rates are rising, you get multiples contracting. We've seen multiples contract more than 30% since the beginning of 2021. So, you know, it is, it's, uh, uh, it, there, this is where it gets difficult to measure how the, the strength of the economy, these external shocks, and then how you have to re rate multiples given the fact that there is, a, as you said, the risk free rate is coming up. So, this is an interesting mix. Um, I think the big question, one of the big questions I wanted to throw your way, and you mentioned it before the call, was, what do you do with the long bond here? You know, I I, do, you, I get a lot of questions on social media and even clients saying, you know, is it time to buy TLT or add duration to a portfolio? Uh, you had an interesting thought on that. Yeah. Call. So Wisdom Tree, we, you know, as CIO, I oversee both our ETFs, indexes, active strategies, and, and model portfolios. One of the the largest. Uh, the firms in the model portfolio space and the largest asset managers around uh, recently added to duration. They saw the spike in yields and said, hey, we're going to add to duration. We did the exact opposite in our model portfolio. So we, as of the 331 uh, sort of rebalance, um, we actually shortened duration. We sold some of our core bonds, longer duration bonds, and bought floating rate treasuries. Um, and yes, yields have spiked, but we, you know, you look at the longer term charts, there's, if, if you're just a technician, you could say you know above three to three twenty five is is really sort of another stopping point on the ten year. Um, but our view is, again, we're in the hawkish camp. So you know the they're starting to talk about rolling off the balance sheet. The you know the the the, the, the all this talk is on curve inversion, right? So the you know the, you've had a lot of inverted curves. Um, but the, the Fed was buying bonds. They were still buying bonds, and you know they they're just starting to stop. But it's going to start rolling off. And they had added five trillion to the balance sheet through COVID. You know, and they're and, and now the details through the minutes start saying we're going to start rolling off ninety five billion a month. How long is it going to take to get five trillion? It's a long time. They're going to need to do more. 
Uh, and so, you know, it's it that we, we, we rates can still have some pressure higher. Uh, and and we like that flowing rate treasury. It basically is stable. It, it, it catches the Fed expectations quickest um, because it's tied to to, to weekly T-bill auctions. Um, so if you're if you're going against that duration play, it's floating rate treasuries to stay stable. Um, sort of best performing treasury, obviously, this year has no duration. Uh, and, and we still think that's that's the trend. Yeah, I mean, you recommended that trade to me earlier in the year in a private conversation. I think that's been a a, a pretty solid uh, recommendation and a great spot to park some some cash. I'm kind of with you. I don't think I want to take on a bunch of uh, duration right here uh, for all the reasons you described. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, you did mention the yield curve inversion before we moved on. I wanted to just pick your brain there. It's like, how, how are you taking that? You know, because we've seen this divergence in different yield curves, some inverting, some kind of steepening still. And it seems like you can kind of pick which one you want to, to, to look at and focus on to drive your narrative. So how are yeah. you parsing through that wisdom tree? A few different ways. I mean, we, you could say the three-month tenure has been widening, and so if anything like that's telling you that's a very, it's a very opposite story of like the two-year tenure. Um, you know, you'd say, well, people are things could be a, again a quick cycle, and they're going to start reducing again. I think that's where some of those curves come in. Siegel has been out there saying the curve is going to be much more inverted, much more than people expect. That over time, because of the way Treasuries have played. Uh, as this sort of risk-off hedge, they there's more demand for treasuries than there used to be in some ways, and that's going to depress the longer end, and you shouldn't be as scared about the curve inverting. Now, the Fed often will get scared about the curve inverting, uh, and it'll be very interesting. So it'll be, I think that's going to be interesting as they see what is the impact of rolling off the balance sheet, what is the impact of the increasing rates. Um, we're not as scared about the curve inverting because of those factors, but uh, you know, there's that's going to be one of the the big narratives because again, we think the Fed's going to be hawkish quicker, and so that's going to bring the rates up. How long does it stay inverted? That floating rate treasury will probably be the highest yielding treasury by the end of the cycle, uh, and um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how much more that that changes the the tone of the conversations. Dang, that's a big call. Um, so your your thought then is that something we've talked about, maybe you get your your opinion on this, is that we've seen term premium actually go negative. And so it's kind of a weirdly a term discount. And we've we've argued and you can see that happen right around the time uh, QE started and really since the most important factor, I think like you alluded to, is since the stock bond uh, correlation flipped negative, which is like late 90s, early 2000s. So it looks like long bonds are, have kind of been a uh, a hedge, a portfolio yeah. hedge for equities, and so that's kept them them lower. You you see the same thing. It's interesting. I, I I'm going to have a piece coming out on Monday talking about. I, I loved your piece last year, and we actually did a because we were a client, we were able to publish it on our our site and talked about the commodity correlation. On Monday, I'm going to write a piece 
uh, or it's in, it's coming out about the dollar has been one of the most negatively correlated assets to the markets. I mean, it, it, when I look at the rolling three year correlation on the dollar versus the S&P is like negative 0.46. And the slope is just a downward trending slope on the dollar. It just keeps trending more negative on the correlation. Um, that's becoming an interesting hedge also. I think it's also a hedge for what's going on right now. We, we can talk about the yen, which is the currency spiking the most. Um, I, I do think commodities also have a very different story that we could talk about, which is they were so bad for so long, the cost to roll them was so bad. I mean, go back the last 20 years, commodities cost you 7% a year to roll the futures because of this, the shape of contango. I mean, I remember taking the CFA, and and this was well over a decade. It was in the, around the 08, 09 periods. And I remember them teaching you in the CFA textbooks that like of the 9 10%, whatever the numbers were in commodities, a third came from collateral, a third came from spot, a third came from rolling the futures. And they taught you there was this natural backwardation in the curve that you got paid. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, should I answer this how it actually is, that it's very deep contango, or should I ask, should I answer it how they teach you in the textbook? And you know, well, then it was, and it was, and people would make would mock like the oil funds that you had spot doing certain things, and the rolling the futures cost you double digit rates during that during a lot of that period. Well, it costs you seven percent a year for the last two decades. Now, I mean, I we we have a a basket GCC that is diversified, not really just an energy fund like some of the funds out there. And it was averaging double-digit roll, implied roll, all of last year. I was looking at the beginning of this month; it was it was way more than double digits. I mean, it was in it multi-teens, like in terms of the implied roll yield from where it's positioned in the curve. So it's a very different story for commodities today. Um, and I think that has a unique inflation hedge. Your point was over the previous cycles, commodities were in sometimes more diversified than bonds. Um, I think that's a very interesting angle. Uh, and then I think the dollar is a very interesting angle right at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you need, I think that's, I'm right with you. It's interesting uh, to, to think that you're going to, if we're in a structural commodity bull market, you're going to have, you know, I, I think it's a, a safe assumption that those curves are going to be a tailwind instead of a headwind. And I think all these ETFs were born in a time when you just think of curves being in contango more than backwardation. It's a time where we were in this kind of excess yeah. versus shortage. And now it does, at least on the oil and energy side, especially when you pull out or think about the outages and, and do the Russia-Ukraine war. I mean, yeah, we're, we're going to be in really steep backwardation for a while. In the oil markets, and and you know, I, I can't, I don't, I don't know what the exact calculation is right now for the roll yield on oil. But I can imagine that you're getting paid in those types of funds that are structured uh, that way. With uh, with the dollar, what do you make of its negative correlation? It's a, I, I, it's not something I've thought too deeply about prior to this conversation. But what is, what's your working thesis, and what are you going to explore in that paper? Well, one of my it's sort of one of my pet peeves is a lot of people think you go international because of you want this diversification from a declining dollar. The purchase power of the dollar declines over time, and it comes back to this inflation fears that okay, inflation is going to devalue the dollar. Um, and and even there was some other people just say you go abroad just for this foreign currency diversification, and and I think that's not really why you go abroad. So in in these international bat like you know the U.S. is a little bit below 20 times earnings. The currency of the most interest right now, Japan, 
the basket in Japan that we look at is below 10 times earnings. It's half the multiple of the U.S. It's a global growth cyclical basket. Those stocks are interesting diversifiers. The yen uh, is not necessarily a diversifier. It, it could be. It could be a risk-off hedge or a time where it just traded with the carry trade. Um, you know, but on a business fundamentals, a rising dollar is very positive to Toyota's earnings. Like Toyota becomes more competitive with the rising dollar. Ford becomes less competitive with the rising dollar. So, like, do you actually need a down dollar play if you own Ford in your portfolio? Like, I I don't see that the that the down dollar is a diversifier. It's actually already have an embedded bet. In the S&P, that's what it shows, that the S&P has a rising correlation to these currencies because more of our revenue comes abroad. Um, but I do, you know, I think some of it is a risk-off play. Capital comes into the U.S., uh, and, and we're sort of the safe haven, and so the dollar has done well. On the yen in particular, this 125, if you go back to the Abenomics period, 125 was when they got, you know, the Japan group started getting a little bit more nervous about how much it was weakening. You're starting to see a little bit of comments recently when it went from 115 to 125. Um, but where does why is the yen moving? It all comes back to the Fed, right? What what did the Bank of Japan say as the Fed is talking about reducing their balance sheet, going to two percent and beyond? They said we'll buy an unlimited amount of Japanese bonds and cap the yield at 25 basis points. So now you have a two and a half percent spread between our tenure and their tenure. And so whereas they might have been hedging some of their currency risk if you're a big Japanese institution, now you're taking that off. You're now sending more capital abroad. So it's real money coming into the dollar from Japan, um, getting more costly to hedge the currency risk, and they could get a huge yield pickup. So you have this huge central bank divergence. You have stock market that's half as cheap as US. Uh, I think it's all part of that value rotation and central bank policies that makes sort of Japan a very interesting market, uh, and the dollar I think is a very interesting uh, currency as well. Yeah, I mean, I read today that Bank of Japan, from their years of kind of QE on steroids, owns something like eighty percent of the country's ETFs at present, uh, and they really are stuck with them and don't know what to do with them. And now you have yield curve control, which is what you're talking about, where you know you're not just setting the front end of the curve or the you know. Fed funds rate, you're you're setting the long end of the curve, and so it's kind of uh, maybe a cautionary tale for monetary policy experiments. But you're 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 saying, given the fact that there that revenue streams come from America and overseas, that actually that the Japanese equities are are pretty attractive here. I do. I mean, at ten times earnings, and that before some of the currency weakness was baked in, they could be be positive earnings growth. A and and they are tied to global growth. It's not tied to the Japanese economy. They're global brands, global companies. Um, the the ETF buying that story gets a lot of headlines. There's a lot of people focus on that. It it, it was it. I think it's a testament to ETFs. It's like they could have bought equities in any number of vehicles. The ETF structure is how they decided to buy equities. You can say, now, why did they buy equities to begin with? They were trying to lower the risk premium for their markets, and there was this overall wealth effect that they were talking about supporting the markets um, as one of the things uh, that they were trying to do. And the ETF vehicle was just how they thought was the most democratic way of, of doing that. So to me, it's a testament to the structure of ETFs. I doubt that they'll sell those positions over time. Uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Like when they had a bond, it would mature. Um, 
And it's hard with ETFs because ETFs don't mature. Now, they had stuff on their balance sheet from 20, 30 years ago that they still haven't sold. So, I mean, from from single stock positions. So they, I don't know that they will sell the ETFs, although that's a risk overhang a lot of people talk about, like what happens when they have to sell these ETFs. I don't know if they will. Um, I mean, they they own a big percentage of the bond market. That and then the question is like, why is the currency not depreciated by more? Is like a natural question to me. Given you know they were just printing yen and buying all the bonds, that so there's something there too, um, but uh, I, I think it is a very interesting market. And and again, the dollar, I, I just tell people not to bet on currencies as much as they do. You don't have to go to Japan and say I need to go long the yen. You could just buy the stocks with a currency hedge, which is DXJ, um, our Japan ETF. But there's you know currency hedge ETFs for all sorts of international markets as well. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, before we get to some good questions, before we get to the questions, I, I've, you're at the uh, you're down in Miami, the Bitcoin conference. So uh, I wanted to pick your brain on this idea that the Fed is attacking the wealth effect that we've seen that really power a lot of consumption over the last you know eighteen months or two years or whatever. And it seems like the, there's a lot of you know intelligent commenters there, commentators that are saying. Crypto is really one area you want to target, where there's kind of a lot of this new money that's been trapped and locked up. So, it's uh, in some ways you see, you know, crypto, Bitcoin, and the Fed's crosshairs. But on the other hand, it, Bitcoin up 20% on the back of that Russian invasion of Ukraine when we had all those uh, all the the sanctions levied. So we've had kind of I think a fundamental tailwind in the form of you know you know crypto and bitcoin specifically is a wealth transfer mechanism unlike enough anything else but we have now chatter and politicians and regulators and you have an interesting spot where you're yep. at wisdom tree so what do you what do you see happening yeah wisdom tree you know globally we have about 80 billion dollars in assets globally 50 in the US 30 in Europe our european business is like hugely commodity heavy um it's diversified we have a lot of uh, equities and other things growing now too but it call it Oh, 20 to 25 billion in commodities with a big part of that gold. So we were, because we are very gold focused, we got into thinking about, well, if, if Bitcoin is the new generation's gold, we needed to be there. And, and we've been focused on crypto products in Europe and we have spot Bitcoin, spot Ether, spot baskets, um, uh, that because they, they let you do it in Europe. So the regulatory regimes are definitely not uniform across the world. We're working on filings in the US. We think our filings are, are put us in a very good competitive position. We have some unique elements of our filings, and we're we're working hard with the regulators. Um, but they're hard. It's tough, you know. We're 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 not giving up. We're trying to do SMAs and indexing. My team oversees the indexes. We're trying to do SMAs on different platforms. Uh, I, I think there'll be more platforms that will help enable for financial advisors. I mean, it's one of those ironic things that all the people listening on here, the general population is buying it in their Coinbase, Gemini, other accounts. It's very difficult for the financial advisor community to do that for their clients. So it's a very interesting position where people are in and the financial advisor community is in because they don't have real tools to do this at scale for their clients. Um, but we're trying to help them uh, the best that we can. We're trying to build our own technology in a wallet, uh, Wisdom Tree Prime, that will help bring all sorts of interesting elements of, of tokenization to assets from stocks, bonds, gold, all sorts of assets. Um, but you know we we do believe that Bitcoin has potential. It's diversifying versus gold and, and other things. And I think that that war that you mentioned, and when you just see you can't take your rubles anywhere, 
it, there's a huge part of the world's population. You can say the U.S. is spoiled in that regard. They don't have to worry about that today. Maybe they will in the future, but they don't have to worry about that today. But a huge element of the world's population does worry about that, and they want to be able to take their assets with them wherever they go on their phone, uh, and and Bitcoin and other currencies, stable coins, other things can be immense value to a huge amount of the world's population. We're, we're, we think there's, there is a space for that over time. Hey, like, I mean, there's a long history of artwork, diamonds, you know, rare books, all kinds of different uh, small physical items that can transfer wealth uh, across uh, jurisdictional boundaries. And so I think Bitcoin is kind of evolution there. We're going to take another quick break to hear words from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, well, let's go past the Ethereum ETF question and go to just straight up. What is Jeremy's macro view for a potential recession in 2023, 2024, or later? What about inflation concerns with real wage growth being negative? Yep. Well, I, I, I do think the, 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 la- the labor supply, I mean, we're basically at full employment. So there's more and more pressure on companies and, and having to compete for workers. And so I do think over time there is wage pressure and that's going to keep, you're going to see that competitive force and being positive for wage growth. Um, that's one of the, the things that supports the economic uh, story that we're talking about. And I think I left it as an uncertainty of, of as the Fed hikes, and as you see these mortgage costs and all these other things feed into it, it, it is an uncertain 2023 to 2024 of when do you, they are trying to slam the brakes on the economy. So at, at some point they are trying to slow the economy down. I mean, that is what they're trying to do. So like when we get tipped into the recession, uh, I, I can't say with certainty today, um, but I, we think today's economy is, is very robust. So I think this is more into a 2023 event uh, and later. Another, let's hit a couple of these questions before we close this out. Uh, another question, there's a huge disconnect uh, between consumer sentiment and market sentiment. Consumer sentiment uh, is super low. Well, it doesn't mean, they're, they're saying, it looks like this question is really about, is there, how do you reconcile the disconnect between the real economy and market sentiment being super bearish and equity still holding up? Um why I guess the question is uh, why are why is the market up in the face of all everyone's a bear everywhere you go uh, the economy is kind of jammed up with uh, and there is a low consumer sentiment in, in the economy what's keeping markets afloat here is the question I think that's a that's the sixty four thousand dollar question from my standpoint well where else are you going to go besides floating rate treasuries and cash is right I mean you got you have you have inflation high so you are even in cash you're losing to inflation. Uh, and so stocks have been the best long-term hedge. Companies raise prices, they pass along their input costs along in form of higher prices. That's why dividend growth over 60, 70 years did 2% better than inflation. If they And in the high inflation decades, the 70s, 80s, inflation was 6%, dividend growth was over 6%. So they pass along. And so you do say stocks are good places to be. 
um, and bond yields are going higher. So it's it's a challenge. Uh, and, and that's where I think the real asset things, commodities, gold, other things can serve a nice anchor. But stocks are ultimately some of the best real assets. Uh, and so I think that's what that's giving the bid. But it has been this dramatic rotation from the most expensive stocks to the cash flowing stocks. And that that's all part of the, the, the narrative as well. Yeah, and that goes into within the market. Another question, which sectors do you hide in in case of an increase in volatility or sell-off? Would a 30% sell-off in the S&P seem uh, too aggressive here with the target of the 3,500 area? You know, that's, uh, so where do you hide in the market? Well, let me throw that back to you, Warren, because I'm going to publish a guest blog from you on our site coming up on what is the sector that is the best equity hedge from from your recent publication. I mean, it's definitely the energy sector, right? I mean, yeah. like you said, if you're going to you're if you're owning equities as kind of a real asset and you're looking for a dividend yield, energy market energy sectors had the highest yield in the market since April 2019. That remains the case despite the fact that the sector is up. 40% year to date and every other sector outside of utilities is down. And so uh, I think you have to be overweight energy equities at this point in the cycle to, to hedge the rest of your portfolio. It is negatively correlated to every other sector in the market. There are no other two sectors that are negatively correlated to each other. So uh, yeah, I mean, you're hedging tail risks and you know, right there in front of you, you can see the portfolio diversification benefits of, of, of energy. And so, yeah, that's uh, that's our our thoughts at three fourteen. You you would you agree? I guess you do since you let me yeah. guess post that. <laughs> yep. No, I mean the, uh, the when I mentioned the high dividend basket, we have um, DHS is our high dividend basket. It's up ten percent on the year, and versus the Nasdaq being down the double digits, it's got biggest overweight is energy. Um, those were high dividend pairs coming to the year, and 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 it's it's more than I think within those factors, you is obviously more than just energy driving that higher. Um, so there are other places that are are giving you positive returns. So I think high dividend stocks is one of those other hedges you could say versus the broader energy. But yeah, I agree. I agree fully with that. That's you. Excellent. Well, I mean, I think we covered a lot of ground today. Uh, my mowers are here now, so it's probably a good signal from the universe to cut this off. But um, I appreciate everybody watching at home. And thank you, Jeremy, for joining me. Before we sign off, I want to throw it over to uh, a conversation that Raul Paul had with CryptoPunk6529. And uh, the title of this clip is The World According to Punk6529. So thank you, everybody, for watching. Jeremy. Always good to talk to you. Thanks, Warren. This is the basis of human society. This is how human society is architected. And now, because I mean, that is, that is sorry, that's religion, that's government, that's everything. everything. Everything is a narrative that we tell ourselves in order to accept a, a societal organization, as you say. We are designed to think in narratives, right? Yeah. We are. The human brain thinks in narratives, and it's how society organizes itself. And what has happened now is those narratives are leaving the hands of centralized parties, right, and are now accessible on an individual basis, right? They're, they're being communityized. It is the exact same model that you had a bank account in 2013, and then I say, oh, Bitcoin, right. It's a bank account without the bank. It's the same thing, but for narratives, for myths, for memes. 
So I keep saying, seize the memes of production. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.